Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 274. And so with that number, of course, it makes me think about the draft. And I thought, how many people have been drafted in NWSL history? So I look back in the first seven NWSL college drafts, 260 players were selected by 12 different clubs. This week, another 36 will hear their names called. So let's give a pre-shout out to 2020 NWSL draft pick number 14. She will be the 274th player drafted in league history. And as of January 14th, that pick belongs to the Orlando Pride. All right, so two chats today. First with Travis Clark from Top Drawer Soccer. He covers a lot of college and high school soccer, mostly, uh, you know, rankings, recruitings. Uh, there's so much data on topdrawersoccer.com. It's, it's incredible. We talked about uh, the top picks going into the draft and how maybe top drawers ratings of players in college might not predict who will go high in the draft. And then I chatted with Sandra Herrera of Southside Trap Podcast. She's based in Chicago. So, of course, Sandra and I talked about Sam Kerr's departure, Brooke Elby's retirement, Maria Sanchez going to Chivas USA, the big Kaleo High, Kitty Not in Trade last week, and more. And the new weekly segment that I launched last week called Jen's Planning. Uh, each week I'm going to have it as part of the podcast explaining off-the-field rules or procedures or maybe looking at a bit of history to illuminate why things are done a certain way. So this week's Jensplaining segment, the topic is NWSL allocation money. And let me know what you think about the segment or send in a question you want answered by emailing keeper at keepernotes.com. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Travis Clark from topdrawersoccer.com, the site that tracks so much wonderful data about high school and college players. Travis, I, I don't know how you keep on top of all of it, frankly. Um, a lot of the draft time can be easier and it can also be harder because a lot of the players that are trying to promote themselves will throw up a highlight video. So then I can actually have, along with tracking a lot of these players, even, you know, men's or women's having seen them since they were in the club game, then I'll have a, have a, had a recent view of them if I haven't been able to catch them during the season. So obviously I'm doing, trying to do my best here because on our site, we cover both major league soccer and the national women's soccer league. So, uh, I mean, it's fun. I can't complain about it, but yes, it is very hard and not, not everything we do is 100% accurate just because there's so many players and so few of us. So uh, hopefully right. we can, we can uh, lead people and you know, steer people in the right direction ahead of this year's draft. Well, like the, the big ranking list that you guys do, and, and I look at those throughout the college season. So there's like a preseason one, midseason, and then postseason. You've got top 100 players and then top freshmen and top by conference. But what kind of metrics go into that top 100 list? So it's a variety of different things, right? No, First of all, at the top, it's easy to say that no list like that, whether it's our recruiting rankings for players that are in playing club, will be 100% accurate because one of the beauties of soccer is it's objective, right? You know, mm-hmm. one, one coach that loves a player 
that fits a certain way may think another one is terrible or not terrible. That's too harsh, but you know, so a lot of what I try to do, at least when it comes to the college rankings is to approach it with a variety of different data points. One being what I can see, what I've watched of the player. And obviously that's going to be the smallest because I have only so many hours of the day and there's so many games players, right? So another right. lens to view it through is, postseason accolades handed out by coaches, which tells part of the story, but has its own flaws, right? As all systems will. And then, you know, the, the third is to just try to look at the whole season of the picture. And, you know, that bumps players up that end up in postseason. But, you know, I think players should get credit for being really good in the postseason tournament or the NCAA tournament rather than like, you like the sort of the, that's where the conference awards fall short for me. And you got to, you know, use that whole picture. So Washington State players who were not very decorated in the Pac-12 awards, as an example, ended up in some of our postseason awards. That's just a, a media thing that comes to mind. And then the last thing, it's important to remember that I approach it as like, who are the best college players or who are the best players to watch or whatever. It's not necessarily who are the best pro prospects. So if you're looking through our top 100 list, say, okay, who – you know, these players are ranked one through 100. That must mean they're pro ranking. That's not necessarily the case because NWSL can be a little bit different just in right. the same way that right. college soccer is different than clubs. So a player that tears up the club circuit could end up just not doing very well in college. It happens all the time. So I think it's important to remember all of that. If you're, I'm working on our rankings for the draft, you know, kind of do my best and, paint as best of a picture as broad of a picture as I can but I you know I won't be I'm not really going through a top 100 for that I think is a good way to sum it up and it's so hard uh to I, I think communicate to fans especially maybe fans who are used to drafts of other sports that there are still so many variables um not a lot of uh, data or video available for everybody. And like you said, you know, so many games and only so many of us that are tracking. So there's not 10 different websites where you can go and see mock drafts and, you know, and, and real analysis of, of players. So there's so many variables. And then I think the transition from NCAA soccer uh, it to NWSL is a really big transition. Um, we keep mm-hmm. hearing from coaches every year, you know, when we, when we start doing our draft prep for the broadcast is just that, you know, their expectation is not that they're going to get someone who can come in and start immediately, you know, unless maybe you have, you know, the number one pick, but that hopefully they can get someone who will understand that though she's probably started all four years of her college career, she's probably not going to start, you know, much this year, but she can learn so much from playing with national team players, the best international players, you know, it's a longer Mm -hmm. season. You don't get to sub in and out once per half. It's like, it's a big, it's a big transition. Um, And that's why one of the reasons I find the draft so interesting is that you, you don't know who's going to fall where, like you said, all coaches have very different ideas of, of who works for them and who doesn't. And I love to go back and look at older drafts and see, okay, who from the first round is no 
no longer playing and who from the fourth round is still kicking it. You know, it's, it's like, it, you just, you don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think so, the, the, the X factor of the draft, sorry, I'm going to jump in is one of the third, fourth round picks. Sometimes it becomes the play that like goes to, to the local players. Like, well, where, you know, a team will have have familiarity or have each other chance to scout right. a player. And when I say local, I mean either played at a college close by or is from the area of the team. Like there was, I maybe I'm wrong. I feel like Chicago's drafted players from the Chicago land area, for example. And they, you know, it's they not, have, and so has Washington Spirit. Yeah. So you know, it's not like a, a huge shock to see that happen, simply because, as you mentioned, it's how much data is available for these players and what what do the coaches feel like they need or what do they feel like they can get like if they draft a player that's local that player can live with their parents and right and sort of make that yeah. adjustment if they you know so they don't have to pronounce i don't know if they would necessarily save significant money but it's just an, an example of how those sorts of things can pop up from time to time in these drafts well, and that's why it, it's huge, the improvements that the league has made just in the last, I'd say, 15 months, where beginning of last season on draft day, we were, you know, we were able to say, hey, rosters are now bigger, minimum salary you know, has gone up, um, and that includes supplemental spots with the minimum salary. And, that, and then what we heard just uh, a few weeks ago from the league that now they're going to pay for housing year round, you know, it's, it's like all of those things add up to making soccer, you know, bit by bit, a more viable option for someone coming out of school, you know, where maybe, maybe they don't have to have that, that safety net of, well, okay, at least I can stay, you know, at my parents' place. So, yeah. Yeah. Baby steps, you know, progress. But let's talk about some of the players who, um, you know, you're most excited about who who are part of the draft or we think will be part of the draft that, you know, could maybe have some impact in the 2020 season. Yeah, I think it's uh, since you're giving, handing me an open ended question, and I know that we're not <laughs> talking in absolutes here. Uh, the, 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 yeah. the buzz of that around Sophia Smith leaving school early and going number one, which seems from all the media reports, I haven't been able to confirm it on my end. You know, uh, what I've been able, what I have heard is that she's doing very well with the full U S women's national team. And she seems like the kind of attacking player that could thrive in NWSL, even if she's not a hit, you know, right away from day one, you know, Sophia Smith's a player that checks a lot of boxes in terms of an up and coming talent, which is exciting just to see that. I know that, Look, when you're having these conversations, it is a player in heading into the women's soccer sort of professional world. You don't have as much in terms of pure income aside from, you know, obviously the women's national team players make very good money and they should make more money, but that's another discussion debate we can leave on the table. But Sophia Smith is, it looks like she's going to make the decision to head into the draft. And I think that injects a little bit of excitement. It gets some buzz around the event, even if, you know, she's taking a risk by leaving Stanford, an institution like that early. So, you know, that, and anytime you get to see an, a dynamic attacking player, and there are a few of them, even if you look up and down the draft boards and perhaps this draft isn't the same as some of the past. I think especially if Smith does enter the draft, 
that gives it a, kind of a feather on the cap. Because in these previous editions of the draft, there were very clear cut number one players. You know, you're looking at players in the past like Morgan Bryan, Emily Sonnet. Right. You know, even last year we had Tierna Davidson. I'm hoping my memory is right in all these accounts, but I'm pretty sure yeah, they are. No, they, no, it is. I, I, it is. I don't. I don't know. Did Crystal Dunn go number one overall? But yes, she did. Like 2014. Of, so you have those sorts of players, and without Smith entering the draft, and uh, you know, another element of it, Jesse Fleming, the UCLA midfielder, is likely to stay in school, barring a. Everything I've heard says that it would be like a huge, shocking development if on Wednesday the final list comes out and there is. Fleming's name on it, which I don't think will happen, but there were like that sort of like clear number one. It would have been a real kind of a crapshoot to right. guess who the number one player would have been. You know, like is it Kaylee Real, the center back from Penn State that was part of the 2015 national championship as a freshman? She played for the under 20 women's national team at a World Cup. Would it be someone like, uh, would it be maybe like a surprise? Like a, I don't know if people would consider Taylor Corniak like a surprise, but. You know, she's a six-foot-tall central midfielder, soft feet, maybe questions about her position, but she provides kind of the aerial presence, The do, you know, is a dominant presence that could play minutes simply because she's that fascinating blend of someone with a, a big frame who, who can play soccer. Like, as, as perhaps, I don't want to mean to be, like, simple as boiling down to her physical characteristics, but, like, she can compete physically in the league, and I think that's a piece that, is sometimes overlooked when you're talking about how a player can make the jump. Or maybe, like, way off the map, Evelyn Vienne is the Canadian striker from South Florida. Like, would she have gone number one overall? So I think the the move the Thorns make last week as we're talking, all signs point to it being a relatively certain thing, unless they trade out of it again or do something else crazy. But the that sort of development over the past week, I think, has injected a lot of, I don't want to say more interest, but a new dynamic to this whole, to the 2020 edition of the draft. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned Evelyn Vienne um, because I think it's fascinating that there's been a lot of buzz around not only a Canadian player in the draft, who's not been part of the national team pool. Right. And she's coming out of South Florida, right. That's Mm -hmm. like, they've they've never had someone in the draft. They had a, a pretty strong showing, in the NCAA tournament. Um, so that's, you know, I'm always intrigued by when we, when we have a big name coming out of school, that's not one of your big name programs. And I think we're starting to see a shift as, you know, soccer just gets deeper and deeper and stronger and stronger that, that it's like, it's not always the big name programs that are going to automatically create a player who transitions easily to the pros. Yeah. And I think a lot of what it comes down to and what I've learned is that a flip, projecting a player's success in any sport is obviously not impossible, but it's difficult. But I, f- I found in soccer that a lot of it comes down to how a player fits and what kind of opportunity he or she gets. So, you know, leaning on my experience of watching players move on from whatever the level, whether it's, you know, a 16-year-old boy signing a pro contract with an MLS team or a 22-year-old senior making the jump for in the NWSL draft, if that player goes into a team that needs, you know, look at the Washington Spear last season where you saw so many of their players, they went out and targeted the, a number of players in the first round. I, I think they came away with four first round picks or three. I can't remember. Yes. I'm, yes. I'm on top of my head, but you know, 
players like Sam Stabb saw a lot of minutes. And, and that's not to say she wasn't a good player, but she made the most of that opportunity was a good fit for the situation. So for a lot of these players, it's, it's a lot, there's some luck involved as well as, you know, how much coaching and how much prep, how they're, how prepped they are for this jump, what kind of a pathway they're provided and those sorts of things. So I'm curious to see what, you know, what a player like the ends as, as we kind of talk about a little bit, you know, she's almost scored a goal a game in college soccer and granted it's harder to score in college than it is. Sorry. Of course, it's harder to score in the NWSL than it is in college soccer. But, and, you know, then there's the, is she definitely going, you know, she's a French speaking Canadian. Like, does she wait and, you know, she get picked by, <laughs> sorry, Sky Blue, but does she get picked by Sky Blue and then say, like, well, actually I'm going to do this and go play in France or will she go take that opportunity? Because I think it was interesting to see someone like a Paige Monaghan, for example, who was picked by Sky Blue. She went to Sky Blue and then had a good season, used most of that chance and was, got to look in with the U.S. women's national team head coach. So those sorts of developments are very interesting. And I think that's the hard thing about a draft in soccer, especially in North America, is the the lack of immediate reaction you can really make because you just don't know what's going to happen. And again, this, this applies for both genders and both leagues, but it's very fascinating. And I know you say that about other sports too, but I feel like soccer is even more pertinent because you know, will it come away with a second or third round pick getting a, a national team call up at some point? That seems kind of surprising. It could happen. So that's fun. And we can try to pick out that player between now and Thursday and let a team know who they should pick. Well, and, and to go back in the 2014 draft, the final pick, um, you know, player number 36, the last one was Kristen Hamilton who, you know, yeah. broke out with North Carolina last summer and got her first national team call up, you know, and, and cap. Um, but back to some of the prospects for, for this draft, um, she hasn't declared yet, but Morgan Weaver out of Washington state, I think would be attractive to a lot of teams. And also I'm really intrigued to see who picks Ziara King out of North Carolina state. She has declared um, just, mm-hmm you know, seems like has really taken that program to a new level. What, what's your thoughts on those two players? Yeah, obviously, Weaver falls into the category of one of the Pac-12 players that, well, I, I want to say she was like, I think she was only second team all Pac-12, which kind of shows you how good the conference as a whole one. But she went on a, a long goal scoring drought, I think. It was like 10 games or something during the 2019 season, which is crazy when you think about the season that they've gone to have, but, you know, she checks, she fits sort of the profile of that, you know, first round, second round pick for a rookie that can match up against defenders and give them some things to think about, you know, as opposed to a player that, you know, on the other end of the sort of the quote unquote prospect spectrum is a little bit more of a cerebral technical type. Not that Weaver is not, isn't that, but she's a, if she's up on the board, I think she'd be a high pick. Uh, CR, CR King probably is as well, where, you know, she's a really interesting uh, recruit, sorry, prospect in that she wasn't like a really highly sought after recruit. And yet here she is four years after a, one of the best careers during that stretch, especially, you know, when she had didn't come with any like youth national team fanfare into her career. And I believe she had, 
10 goals. She finished her with 48 goals in 88 games in the ACC. And like, as you said, basically, you don't want to say it's single-handed because it's a soccer program and there's lots of players and coaches involved. But, you know, she helped elevate that program into a annual NCAA contender, like a pretty, you know, from a bottom feeder into a relatively strong ACC team, which is no small feat. You know, climbing, you know, just look at the, 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 the path and process, something like, you know, Randy Waldrum's going through a pit and that kind of exemplifies how, t- how hard it can be to resurrect a program in a league like that where every game is so difficult. But King, I'll be really curious to see what she does because she more fits to me as like a wide player, a little bit, I don't know how her like speed and athleticism will totally fit in, but I think it'll definitely carry her even though you know, she, she can be clever and crafty with the, the way she plays balls through or finishes in front of goal. So it's going to be really interesting to see because I think those players are – I wouldn't say off the beaten path would be the wrong term, but they're not the first, like, program that comes to mind when you think – when you're sizing up potential pros in the NWSL and college ranks. Well, and talk about, um, you know, a few other players you think who might go – you know, pretty high up in the draft. I don't know. Would that be like Megan McCool or Megan Nally or Courtney Peterson or Ali Watt? I mean, who are who are your your ones to watch? Yeah. So uh, we can. I'll, I'll throw a few names out there. So the Virginia class in itself, I think, is worth mentioning because so Megan McCool had a great season. But if you watched a lot of Virginia soccer, you know, she. I don't, I don't mean this in any disrespect, but I don't know how exactly her her skill set and how that would fit because a lot of it was just being in the right place right time and that's a skill in and of itself don't get me wrong she had some great finishes but in some ways I think she is the like fourth if I'm ranking those four UVA players that are in the draft I'm I there's an argument to me that she's like the fourth in line Courtney Peterson could be the best left back in the draft Zoe Morse could be a very good number six in the uh, you know, as a center mid, and, you know, she's very good with the ball. She played as a defender mostly as an, along the back line. P. McLernan had a great, I would say, like sophomore, junior season. Wasn't quite as prolific. And obviously prolific is a bad word to choose because she was a defender. But, you know, she played outside back. She played right back and left back as a senior, which she was okay at. And she has some things to learn if she's going to be like a modern-day fullback, quote-unquote. But, um very good with the ball, good passer. And, you know, McCool is good in her own right, but I think that I'm curious to see how it all matches up. Do coaches, like, really dig in and do their homework and see, how do I fit her on my team? What kind of decisions does she make? Or, uh, you know, Peterson's more of an obvious fit for teams because she's a left back. So I think she could be the first player in that group off the board, even though I know I'm now talking a lot about UVA players and this is not a UVA podcast. But uh, I think goalkeepers <laughs> are always interesting to watch. Yes. Uh, Amanda McGlynn stands out for me as the best. But I also throw an asterisk on my own opinion because I dislike raiding goalkeepers and don't know if I'm any good at it. But McGlynn, everything I've seen of her, she was in the U20s at the World Cup during the last cycle, even though she didn't play. It was really good in qualifying, if I have that right where she may have split time with Laurel Ivory, who's a UVA goalkeeper. Natalie Jacobs is another former U.S. youth national team player. Started out at Notre Dame, 
finished her career at USC and she's just even more so like McLernan played a ton of positions. So I wonder if that helps her. Does she climb into the second round because she's at a power school, power program and can do a number of different things? Or does that hurt her because teams will look at her, look at her film and be like, well, what's your best spot? I don't really know. So I'm going to pick this other player I feel better about. And then, you know, there are a lot of fascinating players to watch. Uh, Ellis Stevens, a central midfielder at Duke, very good player, very good technical, cerebral player. But does she have the that step that, you know, is she quick enough to play as a center, center mid in an NWSL or to play in Excel there, uh, for example? So uh, the Georgetown players, uh, same thing with them, like very good soccer players. That's Paula Jamina Watnick who's like sort of a attacking mid forward type, but is she, does she have that dynamic edge to impact the game against NWSL defenders? I think Megan Nally is, I would give the edge to her in terms of projecting her can probably play anywhere on the back line, played a little bit of left back, uh, sorry, center back this season, I believe, but has also played as a left back. I think that she could do some interesting things. Uh, you know, there's, Ariel Shavarin, uh, I pronounced her name wrong there. My apologies to her. Fascinating case as well. So she commit, she converted, she played basketball at Yale as well as soccer, converted this past mm-hmm. season from forward to defensive midfield and was, was an Ivy League defensive player of the year, had a very good season. Does that, how does that translate? Like, I don't even know her game super well, but that story for me is like, okay, that's really interesting. And I think that's, something worth following this season. Does she get drafted? Does she go, does she finish her degree at Yale? Like all sorts of like really kind of fascinating subplots to each player that I know, hopefully soccer nerds are excited to listen to when, as I'm, as I'm talking about them. So you have also the <laughs> under 20 veterans from what is it? What were in 2020, maybe four years ago. Uh, like uh, Kaylee Real was part of that team. And Ali Watt was part of that team. They did. Okay. I think they finished a semifinalist. Uh, Natalie Jacobs, as I mentioned. So, uh, I believe Courtney Peterson, a lot of those UVA players might have been on the, in the group as well. So uh, there's, I think there's a good amount of talent. Uh, as the more I talk about and go through these players, I'm like, okay, these are some decent players. And I think a lot of these more, oh, maybe more players can stick than I first thought. And again, it's an Olympic year. There's been no expansion, which would help a lot of these players, but there's still, there'll still be a little bit of a gap and a gap in the season for players to fill in the ranks. Well, just the expansion of of roster size, I don't think that got uh, enough coverage last year going from 20-player rosters to 22 plus up to four supplemental players so that you were Mm -hmm. adding, you know, Mm -hmm. as many as 50-plus spots to, to, to the league. And then that doesn't even factor in, well, you have your U.S. national teamers gone and other players gone for the World Cup so teams can sign um, you mm-hmm. know, national team replacement players. We won't have as long of a break uh, for that, you know, this summer, but there still will, will be an extended stretch where national teamers are, are gone. So at least in lieu of expansion, at least there is, you know, other opportunities to, to get signed and not have to play for free, right? To actually, you know, yeah. be on a contract right. and, and have some stuff provided. Um, I, and I'm really intrigued to get your thoughts on, so since the rule changed last year, and, and we can just call that the Davidson rule, uh, that a player mm-hmm. can leave college 
before she's exhausted her NCAA eligibility or even go straight from high school into the draft if she's at least 18. Um, You know, what do you think that that that's going to do to the college game? And I, I, I don't know. I mean, like we've only had one player so far, you know, really leave early and get drafted. And that's Tiana Davidson. You know, it sounds like we're going to have Sophia Smith, maybe some others. And there's at least one high schooler already on the declared list, which I think is really interesting. So I don't know. Thoughts on that? Yeah, just overall, I don't necessarily see it as a until the NWSL. I would say it grows a little bit more, you know, maybe there's the idea of, adding like a supplemental or development roster. I know there are supplemental roster spots, forgive me, but like maybe some more development centric roster paths. We have obviously on the list now, Haley Cole, a goalkeeper from actually the Portland Thorns Academy. I think her position makes her a, a bit more unique in that it's, it seems like a stretch that she would skip college altogether. Although it, it's worth pointing out too, that in her case, she was part of the 2019 recruiting class announced by Oregon and then never went to school there. So I'm not 100% sure of the specific case of what her plan is or she had communications with the team and she'll join a team in NWSL or go abroad or was just taking a gap year and will enroll at Oregon in the fall and maybe for a last or a name. And I don't really know the specifics of that case, but it, it will be interesting to see if more and more players, I would say in the college game, decide to go pro. Obviously, if you're looking at the women's college season in 2019, Katarina Macario was the best player. And from a player development perspective, it would make the most sense for her to go ahead and enter the draft because she was just absolutely dominant. 32 goals, 23 assists as Stanford won the national title. And now uh, while Sophia Smith didn't have quite the same sort of statistical output, she had a pretty good two year stretch herself and, a lot of her numbers were hampered by just a couple of bad luck injuries. So uh, I think the homegrown piece of it would be somewhat interesting to see if they can make it a viable path, because at the end of the day, it's hard for me to see it turning pro early as being this massive, that there being the incentive to do it. Like we've seen Mal Pugh is the only one, obviously Lindsay Horan is the other exception too. And it's worked out for both of them to an extent, but you could even argue that would Mal Pugh be a better player right now if she was entering the draft early or I mean, what would she have graduated this year that which is kind of insane to think about. I don't no, really want to think about no, that. It makes she, me. No, she, she would have had another year or so. Okay. So let's say she was, she had like cut up the NCAA in UCLA the past two or three seasons and had been very good Would that, would she then consider leaving? I, I know that's a hypothetical and you can't really know the, the outcome of that, but it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating to see. And I'm, I'm curious to see what the, how the NWSL kind of evolves that with a lot still on their plate and a lot of bigger fish to fry, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I think we're just at a really interesting point in the, in the league's landscape as it inter, interacts with... NCAA, you know, it's just there's 
so much that's just kind of TBD. And I, and I've said this phrase for years about the league, but it, but it's still true. It's, it's the wild West. It's, it's the frontier. There's, there's a lot that, um, you know, hasn't played out yet. It's, I, mm-hmm. I love to say that it's only the we're only going into the eighth season. I mean, because that's a huge number when you consider previous leagues, but that's still very young in the history of uh, of a league. And you know, there's expansion on the horizon, and you know, a, a lot of other factors um, changing. Mm-hmm. You know, new, new commissioner to come, Leon getting involved with Rain. You know, all of that. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out um so last question for you travis just um do you think we'll have any surprises in the draft or you know is is there a dark horse player that 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 you want to give uh some uh, some attention to like someone we should be looking for that could be a a third or fourth round pick who surprises us so uh, uh, a couple names come to mind uh kate del fava is a sort of central midfielder from illinois state and I've been familiar with her because she's been one of the better players in the probably at the MDC, the Missouri Valley Conference. But I, I caught her highlight reel, and it seems like a very interesting profile, like pretty dynamic center mid. And I think I, I watch her, and I'm like, I think she's somebody that can stick pretty easily, play at outside back, and you know, coming from a program where there's not a good. You know, there's not an extensive track record, obviously, of players coming from there, from a place like Illinois State or even the MDC and sticking in the league. So I'm, I'm curious to see what kind of situation she finds herself in. Does she get – am I, am I anywhere close to my kind of brief scouting report in, in that regard? And then a little more prominent program, but Sam Dewey at Xavier doesn't – I wouldn't say she reminds me of Paige Monahan, who played a butler – but there's a little bit. She scored a bunch of goals mm-hmm. for the for Xavier. I was going to get Xavier and Butler wrong. I can't do that because um, I should know better. But Dewey is a player that I'm like. Does that? How does that translate? Where do you fit? But I think she's somebody that if you're looking at her game closely enough, maybe talk to a few coaches, find a spot for her. Maybe again, she's like, can she do some defensive work? Do you put her on as an outside back? And then this is not a sort of sleeper pick, but Bridget Andrzejewski at North Carolina, right? So you obviously have sort of the Tar Heel brand attached to you, which will get you a bump. But, you know, I look at her game and I'm like, well, what are you in the pro level? Are you good enough as an outside attacking winger? Do you try to convert to the outside back? But can you defend? Like, because she mostly played, I think, on the left in a front three, especially this past season. But I obviously slotted back on the back line in the College Cup after – Emily Fox tore ACL, but wasn't really pushed and challenged. It's like, what what does she become in the NWSL, and can she find a landing spot and contribute? Because there's something there possibly, but the the fit isn't obvious, if that makes sense. So I'm curious to see how that flushes out for sure. Well, Travis, thank you so much for sharing all your insight. I know you do so much research on all of these players. And it, do you have a, a mock draft or some article you can tease that we should be looking for on uh, Top Drawer Soccer? I'm hoping to have a lot of draft content out by Wednesday morning. Um, time will tell how much of that is, but it should include a mock draft and some draft rankings as best I can. And again, there'll be 
the, the problem is you want to put this all out, but the final draft list doesn't come till 4 p.m. Like last year, right. I was like, do I put Alana Cook in? Do I take her out? And I think I took her out. <laughs> or maybe I left her in. And then she ended up not declaring, signed with PSG. The rest is history. <laughs> so yeah, I'm faced with I at least have like, I think there's a, a good, uh, I have a good handle on what exactly is coming to pass. And the biggest question mark is, you know, does Ashley Sanchez come out? Cause, because it looks like Smith is a lock as far as everything. Again, I've seen, I'm sure you've heard the same thing, but uh, we never know until we see a name on the list and um, we'll see when that comes. It ain't over till it's over and it won't be over till <laughs> that list comes out 4 p.m. Eastern. Yeah, I was going to say, and that's till 4 p.m. on Wednesday. So there we go. All right, time for a little gensplaining. Today's topic, allocation money. And this is not related at all to U.S. national teamers or Canadian national teamers being on NWSL rosters. Uh, In the past, they've been referred to as allocated players. We really need to refer to them as subsidized players. So anyway, allocation money. NWSL announced in early November that starting with the 2020 season, teams would be able to use additional funds to pay players beyond the current salary cap. So with allocation money, they can pay a player uh, a little bit more than the, the player, the league maximum salary, um, you know, to make coming to the league more enticing teams can purchase up to $300,000 in allocation money from the league and they can trade that money once it's been purchased. We've already seen the first ever trade involving allocation money this week as Utah sent allocation funds to Chicago in exchange for a first round draft pick. Now, allocation money can only be used in connection with player contracts that exceed the league maximum salary, which for 2020 is now up to $50,000 a year. And allocation money cannot be used for Canadian or U.S. players whose salaries are subsidized by their federations. And any player who they're going to use allocation money on, a team wants to use allocation money on, they have to meet at least one or more of the following criteria. So it's got to be an American who's played at least five seasons in NWSL. They've got to be on the best or second 11, one of the last two seasons. An international player who has at least three caps, or rather, I'm sorry, more than three caps for their national team in the last two years. Um, anyone who won one of the major NWSL awards for the last two seasons being MVP, Golden Boot, Rookie of the Year, Defender of the Year. Any player who was once a subsidized player for U.S. or Canada. Um, and any player whose contract previously included allocation money. So this opens up um, a lot more freedom for teams in terms of trade assets, but also a way to keep star players and attract new star players. Um, similar to the Chicago Utah trade, we've already seen that Rachel Daly has re-signed with Houston and they were able to use allocation money to bump up her salary. So I think this is going to be a really interesting piece of salary negotiations and trade negotiations. Um, and it's a, it's a great thing for the league, I think, to move in this direction um, as more and more leagues 
get involved with the, you know, starting to really pay players. You know, we, if, if the league wants to keep the best players in the U S got to do something about it. So there's a little bit about allocation money. Hope it was helpful. And if you have a question you want answered with a little Jen's planning, just email it to me at keeper at keepernotes.com. All right, Jen Cooper, the Keeper here with Sandra Herrera from Chicago, who is one of the hosts of the Southside Trap podcast covering, of course, Chicago Red Stars. Sandra, we got so much to talk about because Chicago is one of the two finalists from last season. Been very busy these last couple of weeks. Yeah, shocking, right? Chicago, busy, <laughs> heading into the draft and into draft week. It's it's. It's always a blast this time of year. Rory Dames, the mover and shaker. Yeah. (laughs) Well, first let's talk about the players who have departed the Red Stars. And I guess we kind of need to talk about the biggest one first, which is, of course, is is Sam Kerr. Uh, And I guess you guys saw that that was was coming, right? Yeah. For for those of us who cover the team pretty closely uh, locally here in Chicago, I think it was fair to say that you know, the writing was, was on the wall uh, for that type of player. You're talking about a superstar player, one of the, you know, biggest strikers in the world in women's uh, soccer. So really out of that World Cup, you started to hear a lot of the chatter about it. But credit to Sam Kerr, she always wanted to keep uh, perspective and the narrative just based on her current club at the time, which was the Red Stars, and their goal of getting to an uh, NW, NWSL championship final. So, um despite all the chatter around it and even the small opportunities that we wanted to try to get to speak to her on it, she definitely wanted to keep things focused there. So it wasn't too, too shocking once the offseason sort of got into swing uh, that the announcement was made that she was uh, heading overseas to to play with Chelsea. And, you know, she's going to be obviously impossible to replace. I don't even want to say difficult to replace, but impossible to replace. But, you know, so obviously – we'll be looking to Rory Dames and, and Chicago to make a lot of moves, like one of the moves they made last week to, you know, figure out a new plan for the offense for 2020. But a couple of other departures, we saw Mar- Maria Sanchez sign with Chivas in Liga Mex. So what do you know about that? Was that, is that for her a, a better way to get an opportunity with the Mexican national team? I don't know uh, so much about a better opportunity within the Mexican national team. I just think that right now, for a player like her at, at her age, you know, she came out into last year's NWL draft, declared herself eligible, and tried her shot at maybe getting drafted. And we know right now the league is currently a 19 league, and it's it's difficult. There's a lot of players who declare themselves for that draft, and it's you know a lot of broken hearts. You know, on top of the ones that are elated. When the ones that get drafted, there are plenty of other players that, you know, end up having to seek other opportunities. And Maria Sanchez was the second round pick for the Red Stars coming out of the 2019 draft after they had taken Tina Davidson in that first round, first overall. So there was a lot of excitement, I think, around having a player like Sanchez. I think for a coach like Rory Dames to have made that pick, it also sort of showed his commitment to maybe not be as predictable. It definitely I think on paper, looking back at it now, it wasn't the type of take that maybe you would have thought a coach and team like the Red Stars and Rory Dames might have made. Uh, 
but they made it. They got themselves an international player in Mario Sanchez. And, like, coming out to a team like the Red Stars, it's very, very difficult to sort of crack through. I mean, you hear that a lot with certain teams in this league. And I think when you start narrowing that down to sort of the, the top-tier teams and the top-table teams, it's going to be difficult. But she was the type of player that earned her contract. You know, coming out of preseason, that's, that's a big deal. That's difficult for rookies to do in this league still as we're heading into the eighth, uh, the eighth season here. So I think her role sort of being what it was, this kind of off-the-bench player, uh, seeing some minutes towards the end of games, uh, small stretch early on in the season, maybe around May or so, and then smaller stretch during that World Cup portion. And then just sort of seeing that dwindle down towards the end of the season as they were really making their – the rest of us were really making their push – for the table in that second seed, you just kind of figure that, you know, there was possibility that a player like this, who also had ties internationally, right, because you have to keep in perspective your international career, and a player like her who had been with the Mexican national team since she was young, very, very young, right, her right. teenage years. So you got, I think there was a mixture of, like, wanting to be able to continue your development, and you got to, in order to do that, you got to get minutes, right? And then there was also that other factor of making sure, you know, things are all sort of squared away in terms of your international status and international play. So I think this move to Chivas is good for her. I'm excited to see what she can do out there in that league. I, I've said a number of times that I, I feel the, the gap in talent is still why when it comes to when you're comparing apples to oranges and two leagues like NWSL and Liga MX Seminil. So I feel like a player like Sanchez going to Liga MX Seminil with a year of, you know, the professionalism that she got here in NWSL is going to do wonders for her. So I'm really excited to see what she does out there with Chivas. Yeah, uh, that's got to be a great mix of, of experience, especially where here's a player. So she's had, you know, kind of top college experience at Santa Clara you know, then the most competitive athletic league in NWSL and then a very different kind of league in Liga Max. But that's, you know, that's just going to make her grow as a player. And then, of course, uh, Brooke Elby announced her retirement and she's taken on a new role with the NWSL Players Association. She'll be co-executive director with Yale Overbush. Um, But talk about uh, losing Brooke Elby from the roster. You know, Brooke Elby was a player that the Red Stars acquired in that mid-season trade back in 2018 from Utah Royals, where there was Chicago, Houston, and Utah. They were all participated in that sort of three-team trade that sort of moved Mm -hmm. Kristen Press's rights to the Royals and Sofia Huerta and Taylor Kermode Houston, and then bringing the number one draft pick (laughs) to Chicago and also uh, Brooke Elby. So having her come, and she brought – a level of professionalism and experience to the Red Stars. It was, I think, important for the player that arrived from that deal to the Red Stars was somebody who already sort of knew the ins and outs of the NWSL. And I think a player like Brooke Elby just epitomized that. I mean, we got to see week in and week out just sort of the work that she would put in for her team, yes, as a teammate, but also as, you know, at the time, president of the NWSL Players Association. And uh, it was really like seeing her put in this work and, you know, doing these two different roles, really almost like two different full-time jobs. So uh, she really, I think, brought a certain level of experience and veteranship and just all-around good camaraderie in terms of 
the Red Stars locker room. And as far as the soccer aspect of it, it was just somebody that the Red Stars knew that they could go to off the bench and they knew what they were getting out of. And a player like Brooke Elby, whether they were putting her at outside back or in the midfield or, you know, as we started to see during last year, she had a couple goals up on that top line. So um, right. you know, I wish her well. It was great to see her while she was here with the Red Stars. Yeah. So you also have Erin Wright, formerly Erin Gilliland. She'll be out this season uh, for maternity leave. But it sounds like, uh, based on how late the, the season's going to run, that she could have a chance to return during the season. Yeah, you know, I think that's something that people will definitely be keeping an eye on. I think we saw something really special uh, when we saw a player like Sydney LaRue sort of make her uh, way back after her right. with her, her daughter, her second child. So that was a really special moment uh, in last year's season. And I think there's a possibility we could see that from uh, for the rest of us and the player like Aaron Wright. So let's talk about the, the acquisitions that Chicago's picked up. The big trade between my hometown and your hometown last week, Kaylee Ojai going to Chicago, Katie Naughton heading to Houston. What did you think about that when you first heard about that trade? Just, uh, I thought it was pretty fair. Honestly, when I saw it go through, I went, you know, player for player, um, fits some needs right now. I thought for both teams, I thought this was, I felt like it was a trade that both teams can sort of take a look at, shake hands and say, you know, this is a pretty good trade. And I think it's filling in some areas that uh, need looking at when you're looking at these two squads uh, for our, you know, for, for the Red Stars on their side, you know, Dash, you know, have needed to kind of tighten up that defensive line, I think, for a number of seasons now. Right. And I think getting a player like Katie Naughton is going to help do that for them immediately. You're getting a veteran of this league. You're getting someone who's very, very good at her center back position. And honestly, it just I think it just came down to sort of seeing this type of defensive depth that the Red Stars had. <clears throat> and when your center back pairing is looking like it's going to be Julie Ertz and Tanner Davidson, you're sort of, you know, looking at the rest of your defensive depth like, well, who's possibly going to be moving here? And then when you look at the type of season that Sarah Gordon had, I think it just sort of, you sort of saw yes. that uh, possibly, yes. you know, coming. So I think uh, the general excitement for a player like Ojai to arrive to Chicago, I think is very, very big. I think there's a huge upside there for that. I know she's gone on record a couple times um, sort of saying that it's a move that she did sort of initiate because she wanted to, try to, you know, get outside of her comfort zone and yeah, fresh, and maybe fresh sort of start. work her way into yeah. work her way into a new form. And, and I really respect that. I, I respect that tremendously out of these players. So I think there's a lot of excitement, I think, from both clubs. Yeah, and, and I know it surprised a lot of people in, in Houston, but you know, once you kind of look at all the pieces and you hear that, you know, she initiated the trade and you know, if she's gonna have one last shot at the national team, like you said, she's gotta get out of her comfort zone. And we've seen it in the past. Sometimes players playing in their hometown, and let me let me qualify that of course Houston's not her hometown, but her sister's family lives there. Uh, you know, she told me in 2014 that it was the closest thing to being in her hometown. So I think there's there is a comfort zone there um, that she won't necessarily have in Chicago. Also, there's a huge opportunity with Chicago, having lost Sam Kerr, to come in and you know here's your chance to prove 
for what you have. And also I, I've seen this a lot with trades where it's like just sometimes a new environment, right? Just, just kind of like refresh your love for the game, you know, experience things differently. So I'm really intrigued to see how it plays out for, for both teams. Cause like you said, I think it's, it's a pretty fair trade on both sides. And speaking of trades, we had another one today uh, on, on Tuesday with the first time we've had a trade in the league involving allocation money so this is of course what uh the the owners voted to add following the 2019 season that each team has up to three hundred thousand dollars of allocation money um and you can trade it uh, you know assuming you've actually bought it from the from the league uh, you don't have the three hundred thousand unless you actually put it in play but chicago has received allocation money from utah in exchange for the number eight overall pick. So when you heard about that trade, what did that tell you about Rory Dames and his, his drafting history and his drafting expertise? You know, when the league announced that the, the allocation money was now going to be a thing that exists for NWSL, I thought, wow, this is going to be new uncharted territory for a coach like Rory Dane, and I'm sure he is absolutely excited to try to get a chance to maybe utilize that as an additional asset going into another NWSL draft, Uh, because I think so often, just historically, looking at the Red Stars and looking at Rory Dane and how he works his own NWSL draft days, it's, it's fair to say that they've had you know, very memorable historic draft moments. Um, right. And I think having something like allocation money just adds another, uh, just another layer, just another weapon in his arsenal, really, to for him to utilize for his club. So the fact that the very first <laughs> sort of allocation money type of trade transaction occurred between two teams and one of them was the Chicago Red Stars is 0% shocking to me. Um, so uh, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting and exciting to see what he's going to use that in particular for. If he's going to just hang on to it or if he's going to maybe try to move it again, we'll see. Um, but I'm excited in general, just league wide across the league to sort of see the prospect of what this could be and how it could benefit clubs throughout the league. Yeah. Um, as, as, as I, <laughs> I like, I always come back to this phrase and I hate it. So overused now it's, it's like the, the wild West, the frontier of NWSL. Right. And, um, each year, you know, bigger changes, it's still such a young league, you know, um, and there's so many big changes still to come when we, you know, hear that, uh, you know, the league is still hoping to go to 14 teams by 2022 and, you know, so much to still be determined, but yeah, it's just, I think the best word for it, it's delicious, right? Like there, there's so much for us to follow and things keep happening and news keeps breaking, uh, especially following a pretty quiet off season. Right. So it's like, we're finally getting all the, the, the trades and and the moves and, and stuff like that. And, you know, we'll probably have, um, like last year, some players come out of college early, right? You know, so it's just drama, drama, drama. We love it. 
Yeah, as soon as, as soon as the new year hits, it's like that's when you know you're going to start seeing some movement. You're going to start seeing the headlines, hearing the hearing the stories and stuff about potential trades, and then they finally get confirmed. And yeah, it's it's uh, it's been a wild ride so far, and the draft's still like you know a day or so away. So it's going to be good. I'm, I'm curious to see if any other teams. Now that two teams have already sort of taken the leap, right? I'm curious right. to see if how the other how the how, how other teams are, you know, maybe trying to think about how they can utilize that as well. Right. Yeah. Now the door is open, so everyone else will rush through it. Well, Sandra, thank you for taking the time to chat about Chicago and the league and the, the recent moves. And, you know, good luck with the Southside Trap podcast. Thank you. We just lost the, launched the uh, Patreon, and everyone can go ahead and uh, check that out. And if you like what you hear, definitely subscribe. we got a lot of great uh, content for people who subscribe to different tiers. And uh, thanks. Love chatting with you. Appreciate you having me on. All right, time to wrap it up with the back four, the NWSL College Draft. Finally, it's this Thursday, January 16th in Baltimore. The draft will stream live beginning 11 a.m. Eastern on NWSL's Facebook page and YouTube page. I will be part of the broadcast crew along with Marissa Pilla, Lori Lindsay, and Jordan Angeli. If you're in the Baltimore area, you can actually attend the draft. It's open to the public, no charge, at the Baltimore Convention Center. Um, Spirit Squadron will be there. Uh, A lot of players that have declared for the draft will be there. Totally worth coming by if you're in the area. And for more info about the draft with updated order of picks and history of the draft, check out my draft details page at keepernotes.com. And Olympic qualifying kicks off in about two weeks. 20 players will be named to the final CONCACAF tourney roster from the preliminary roster released last week. So 20 U.S. players, so that means obviously not all of the World Cup players will be on that roster. And, of course, that roster is not uh, does not restrict anybody. If they don't make that this roster in January, it doesn't mean they can't make the Olympics this summer. Group stage games will be played in Texas. Semifinals and final will be played in L.A. The two semifinal winners qualify for Tokyo 2020. You can check out ussoccer.com for scheduling and ticket info. And the USA games should all be available live via one of the NBC Sports channels um, as they hold the rights to all Olympics. And if you're coming to games in Houston, note there's a great Dash ticket bundle. You can get the Dash home opener in April and any USA game for just $37 or $57, depending on the seat location. Call Dash sales rep Jay Adelberg at 713-276-7529 to get that package. And we finally have the dates and opponents set for the 2020 She Believes Tournament. This will be the fifth edition of the She Believes Tournament. March 5th, the tournament will kick off in Orlando, playing at Exploria Stadium, the home of the Orlando Pride. March 8th, games will be played at Red Bull Arena in Harrison, New Jersey. And March 11th, the tournament will conclude in Frisco, Texas. The three opponents uh, will be England, Spain, and Japan. First time for Spain to be in the She Believes tournament. And as always, it's a round-robin tournament. Tickets go on sale to the public starting Friday, January 17th. 
And last, be sure to check out keepernotes.com. I'm always adding more content, maybe kind of slowly, but I am adding more content. Um, Hal Kaiser is posting stories again. Uh, we've got photos from NWSL games, lots of stat nerd links and more. So check that out. All right. That's it for this episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone for sharing this podcast with other soccer fans. Many thanks to both Sean and the Beautiful Game Network for making this podcast happen. But now she's out.